This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Sometimes I think if we knew how the world was really created, I mean really truly, from the beginning of time, then there wouldn't be any wars. How much easier would it be if we knew how we were created, if we knew we were created by an intelligent, magical entity, or if we evolved from single-cell paranecium after a very big bang, or if we were simply part of some indescribable technological matrix? This knowledge would make our lives so much less complicated. No one, not one person on this planet, knows empirically how or why we are here. That uncertainty has given rise to incredibly elaborate theories we have come to believe so certainly that we fight to the death to convince others that our elaborately constructed ideologies are somehow superior. I think all of this comes from our elusive and mysterious origins. If only we knew how we got here. But right now, in this particular time in our universe, the answer eludes us. So we battle on, weary and restless, anxiously waiting for proof, and convincing ourselves that if we win this one last battle or send more people into the fray, that all will be won and justice finally will be had. If only it were that easy. Walking home from work yesterday, I imagined what the legacy of our generation will be 100 years from now. Maybe, if we are lucky, 1% of the people living today will still be alive in 100 years, albeit very old. I wondered what will be remembered and how history will judge our actions. I realized that much of what we think of as news, or really entertainment, will long be forgotten. No one will know of or remember or care about Britney Spears or Angelina Jolie or Donald Trump. They will barely be footnotes in the annals of how we distracted ourselves at the turn of the 21st century. But these are our times. In many ways, this is all we have. I think we forget about that. We use all sorts of elaborate ruse in order to create a sense of security about who we are and what our purpose is, when in fact there really is no way of knowing. Personally, I am very guilty of this. I use all sorts of things to convince myself that I am secure. I will readily admit that I try to convince myself that I feel more secure when I have an abundance of paper towels in my home. Also, toilet paper, tissues, and napkins. I have a thing for paper goods. I convince myself that I feel more secure when I have enough cat food and dog food to feed my pets for a month, and enough water to drink for a year, and packs of batteries and bath soap and clean sheets and light bulbs and coffee and good salt and Diet Dr. Pepper. I know that somehow I feel like I'll fit in ever so slightly more if I have the brand new iPod and pretty clothes and snazzy shoes and an IT handbag. But this collection of things, this loopy safety net, is not really keeping me safe at all. 
I know it is the illusion that I enjoy in order to convince myself that if anything bad happens, I will still be able to go on and take care of the people and the pets that I love. But these things aren't enough, and they never will be enough, really, because in the same way we are searching for scientific certainty, philosophical certainty is just as elusive and just as mysterious. I think that this ongoing quest has resulted in the undue responsibility we have placed upon these things, these brands that we collect. We all know that we use these things to fit in and express choice and create community. But I also think the consistency and stability and tenacity of these brands allows us to feel safer and more secure in an often hostile and volatile world. This past Monday, I was walking home from work and stopped at an ATM to withdraw some money. When I got to the entrance of the bank, a homeless man opened the door for me. He was holding a paper cup containing a few coins and a single dollar bill. I thanked him for opening the door and went over to a machine to extract some cash. And a few moments later, the homeless man opened the door for somebody else, and another homeless man walked into the bank, also carrying a cup. They looked at each other for a moment, and then the first homeless man told the second homeless man, This is my spot. He continued by telling the man that he understood it was cold out, but he had gotten there first, and it wasn't fair for him to move on to his territory. The second man was quiet for a second, and he looked around. Then he nodded and said he'd only stay for a minute or two until he warmed up. The first man said thanks, and then suggested he go to a bank on 23rd Street that was also a good place to stay. The second man nodded and said okay. I hadn't really thought about the inner politics of homelessness before. Inasmuch as I see homeless people every day, I hadn't really thought about the relationship that they have with each other and the machinations of living in a world where you are competing for nothing with people that also have nothing. I couldn't help but be overwhelmed by the exchange between the two men and once again chastised myself for imagining that I don't have enough. We are all connected in this universe. We are connected by the things that we have, by the things that we don't have, by our uncertainty, and by our strength. Though today I am no more certain of things than I was yesterday or the day before, today I am grateful that I don't sleep at a bank and that I have enough paper towels in my apartment to last me a few months. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Melman. I am your host, Debbie Melman, and my guest today is author and entrepreneur, Seth Godin. Before we get started with our interview, please let me tell you a little bit more about him. Seth is a best-selling author, and he is an entrepreneur as well. He is the author of seven books that have not only been worldwide bestsellers, they have changed the way people think about marketing, change, and business. His first book, Permission Marketing, was an Amazon Top 100 bestseller for a year, a Fortune best-selling best business book, and it spent four months on the Business Week bestseller list. It also appeared on the New York Times Business Book bestseller list. His other books include Unleashing the Idea Virus, which is an ebook about how ideas spread, and is the most popular ebook ever written, with more than one million downloads to date. Other books of his include The Big Red Fez, which is Godin's take on web design, and Survival is Not Enough, which Tom Peters called a landmark. More recently, Godin has written four New York Times bestsellers in a row, Purple Cow, a book about how companies can transform themselves, as well as Free Prize Inside, my personal favorite, All Marketers Are Liars, and Small is the New Big. 
Godin was a contributing editor to Fast Company magazine, was recently chosen as one of 21 speakers for the next century, and was called the ultimate, ultimate entrepreneur for the information age by Business Week. Welcome, Seth. You forgot to point out how handsome I was, Debbie. Oh, well, that's a given. All the men on my show are handsome. That was the <laughs> kindest, kindest introduction. It was totally unnecessary, and I thought your opening monologue was poetic and thoughtful, um, and I have to completely disagree with you that we don't know where we came from. But other than that, I thought it was a great way to start. <laughs> well, thank you. I'll have to invite you on the show again with compliments like that. Um, well, I, I have uh, like 50 questions to ask you, but now that you've opened me up to this big challenge, um, so, so where do you think we've come from? Well, you know, the All Marketers Are Liars book says that everyone has a worldview. Yes. And we take the things that we encounter in our lives and ignore them or embrace them based on our instincts, our biases, and the way we started. Uh, that worldview, the worldview that makes yes. some people like George Bush and some people like John Edwards, it has nothing to do with what they say or do. It has to do with the biases. Well, mm -hmm. guess what? We know nothing about gravity, nothing. And nobody ever walks around calling gravity just a theory. Nobody walks around wondering why we don't understand how cups stay on tables. No one goes around saying, well, the earth sucks and God is holding this cup onto this table. That's not what happens. We just accept the fact that gravity works because we don't have any biases about gravity. We know an enormous amount about how people got here. We know more about how people got here than almost anything else in nature in terms of step by step from paramecium to, you know, in, in, things that are now extinct, all the way up to people. We know how long it took. We know when farming started. We know we can track the DNA of the path from Africa all the way up to Siberia and across the Bering Straits. We know all that. It's just that a lot of people have a worldview well, that I'm gonna says, I don't want to buy that. They don't want to do the research. They don't want to look at it scientifically. Instead, they would prefer to embrace this false mystery. Well, no, no, no. I, I am not suggesting. I'm not suggesting that that I'm embracing any false mystery. As a matter of fact, I agree with with everything that you've said. Um, and I think we're both Dawkins fans, just just by hearing you say that. However, I'm not really talking about the first paramecium till now. I think that that I agree with you completely, and I absolutely understand. I'm really talking about pre Big Bang. I understand, and I absolutely believe in, in, in string theory, and I'm, I'm a huge proponent of, of the Big Bang Theory. However, what I'm really talking about is assuming that the, the Big Bang Theory started with a singularity, that everything started from this one Big Bang, the reverse singularity, and that was what was, what was contained in that speck of singularity was helium and hydrogen and carbon, my question is, really, where did the helium and the hydrogen and the carbon come from? And what was before the Big Bang that allowed the Big Bang to come forth? So and that's, that's, that's really the big mystery for me. <laughs> so we should just move on to things I <laughs> I thought we were going to talk for an hour about physics. Um, but in any case, that, that's really the, the big question that I, that I grapple with on a daily basis is, you know, where did the helium come from? But, you know, my favorite line from All Marketers Are Liars, which really ties into this quite nicely, um, is this. And this is the line that really inspired my monologue, which was, you'll understand perhaps for the first time that there is a complete disconnect between, between observable reality and the lies that we tell, 
that, that we tell ourselves. And, and so I, from that line, I have a whole series of questions I'd really like to ask you. And one of my uh, favorite things, in addition to that, another line that I loved, um, is this. Some lies that people tell themselves in order to maintain the status quo. And then you have a whole list of lies. And this is a mailer that you created. And I'm just going to read a couple of them, the, the funnier ones, I think. Um, some, some lies that people tell, tell in order to maintain the status quo. Number one, Canadian pharmaceuticals are dangerous. And then number three, dental work lasts forever. Number seven, working hard for your boss and following instructions is the best way to get ahead. Number ten, who you know is more important than what you do. So um, it fascinates me that, you know, as a culture, we're so gullible that people will embrace patently false ideas if it helps them deal with their fear of change. Um, why do you think people lie to themselves in order to maintain this status quo? Oh, so much of what's going on in every decision we make is based on fear. People mm -hmm. think that capitalism is about greed, but in fact, our society is based on fear. And what are we afraid of? We're afraid of snakes. We're afraid of public speaking, but most of all, we're afraid, afraid of change. Somebody who has nothing, somebody who's starving and doesn't have a place to live is not afraid of change too, too much because things can only get better. So, sure, change. But somebody um, who is comfortable doesn't want to confront the idea that maybe, just maybe, they'll get fired or maybe, just maybe, they'll get sick or maybe, just maybe, this won't be as good as that. And... So what we do to deal with it is we amplify the fears in the back of our head and those fears paralyze us and we tell ourselves stories so we can live in a world where we're afraid. Mm -hmm. And so you will find people just as superstitious as a trained pigeon doing things over and over again, not because they work, but because they help, you know, allay some of these, these fears. And what's fascinating is as our culture loosens up, as change happens more often, as it's possible to start a company with, you know, two people and no money, which wasn't possible in 1960, we're seeing that people who get over that, who, who can see through it, have an incredible unfair advantage over everybody else. And, you know, just to pick one newsworthy item, everyone's talking about the Apple iPhone. There's 100 companies that could have made the iPhone, mm -hmm. but only Apple did. Because only Apple said, what are, we don't care. we got nothing to lose. Let's try it. Let's, let's put everything we can think of into this kind of device and push the envelope because the alternative is we won't, we'll have 0% of the cell phone market. So they went for it, whereas the Verizons, the Motorola's, the Nokia's of the world are busy trying to maintain what they have as opposed to rethink the system and break it and then fix it again. Why do you think Microsoft even came out with Zune? Well, you know, one thing that I write about a lot tangentially is the dynamic that occurs when more than one person makes something. Mm -hmm. And, you know, after it's not just Steve Jobs telling everyone what to do, but when it's a committee of five or ten or twenty people who have access to hundreds of millions of dollars, the decisions that get made aren't how do we make this customer delighted, the decisions that are made are, how do we make this committee happy? Mm -hmm. And so it, it's frequent that you find um, groupthink in market leaders because the committee is in charge. Well, we uh, have to take our first break, Seth, but after the break, I'd like to come back and continue talking about this and other, uh, not only other thoughts from all marketers, the liars, but other 
ideas from Small is the New Big and Purple Cow and all of your other wonderful books. Um, I'd like to let everybody know that they are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is author and entrepreneur Seth Godin. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Four hundred ones, stock, mortgage, retirement, wealth—we cover it all. Voice America Business. Welcome to Voices of Design, brought to you by Adobe, where creative professionals speak out about their work and what inspires them. Kevin Grady and Colin Metcalf are the creative brains behind Gum. The magazine has a box-style format, and past issues came with the Viewmaster reel, gumballs, a comic book, and stickers. Kevin and Colin, tell us about your intent. One of the Aims in doing gum was to almost set up a, almost a pop art experience where the piece itself, rather than being a typical magazine, is actually more of a, a, a an object itself. We're trying to create something that uh, that has that aha value where you're flipping pages and there's something to delight you. And uh, we call it variably the brick, or we call it a pinata. But I think pinata is probably the best way to talk about it because it is. It's like it's a big old box of stuff. It's a gift. <laughs> you dump it out, you have to be kind of a, a Scrooge to not at least get an, an immediate kick from it. I mean, free gum, you know. Yeah. You've been listening to Voices of Design, brought to you by Adobe. Coming up in the next break, Kevin and Colin talk about some of the unusual content in their magazine. Mom, my tooth fell out. The coach says I can play shortstop. I can be a deciduous tree. You live for the first in your child's life, but how do you cope with the first that come after your child is diagnosed with cancer? CureSearch.org connects you to the doctors and scientists whose collaborative research has from childhood cancer from a nearly incurable disease to one with an overall cure rate of 78%. CureSearch.org. You're not as alone as you feel. Brought to you by CureSearch and the Ad Council. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business. This is Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.20 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Episode 2 of our Season 4 of Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. It is so good to be back on the air. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is author and entrepreneur, Seth Godin. If you'd like to join our conversation, if you have a question for Seth and would like to speak with him, our phone lines are open. You can call 1-866-472-5790. And as you can imagine, we have a caller. It is Gregory. Gregory, welcome hey, to Debbie. Design Matters. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Wow, that was a really, that is a very inspiring monologue. I, I think we could all take a lesson from those two guys. Thank you. Um, Seth, I, I have a question. It's very interesting. Um, it wasn't a question I was originally going to ask you, but um, the whole question of, of the fear thing, um, I, I've always felt that the people who succeed or certainly succeed at whatever they aspire to isn't necessarily because they're the smartest or the most talented. It's because ultimately they're fearless. And I'm curious to know if, if you believe that um, fearlessness is something that is conditioned as we're growing up, or it's inherent, or it's both? Well, I, let me uh, 
semantically differentiate from it. I don't think there are any fearless people on the planet. They'd be dead. Um, you know, there are plenty of people who are afraid for good reason of getting run over by a car. Entrepreneurs are some of the most fearful people I know because we don't want to go out of business and get a job as a teller at a bank. But you take the risk anyway, and that's what I'm curious. How yeah. do you and it's I mean, not that you makes... take the risk anyway. It's that you put things that other people are afraid of into a category of I'm not afraid of that, meaning that when I give a speech, I'm not afraid of people not laughing at my opening joke. But, I, that, fear is not part, that fear is not part of my life. Have you ever contemplated saying, gosh, I think they might be afraid of it, but somehow you say, but I'm really not afraid of that, even though secretly you might be? Yeah, I, I guess. I mean, I'm just projecting from my own life. I right. find that the areas where I am generally regarded as being fearless are areas where it's not like I'm scared to death and I do it anyway. It's just that I have taught myself and pushed myself to be afraid of other things instead. Well, I mean, that, some of that, of course, is just natural. Again, it's like, you know, if, if, a, if a boa constrictor or a, a rattlesnake is in front of you, you're naturally afraid. Um, if you're on the ledge of a building, you should be afraid. But um, things that you want, there are many things people want or want to do or, or want to uh, aspire to that um, their fear holds them back from doing that. And, and fear is irrational, so it's very difficult to rationalize uh, comparing yourself to other people because it's an emotion. Sure. And so I'm curious to know, you know, how does one, that's what I, that's what I mean, you know, children are conditioned uh, when they're faced with things they want uh, as they grow older and uh, they, they just go after it anyway. And, and did their parents train them that? I mean, Catherine Hepburn said that. She said her parents taught her to be afraid of nothing. You know, and that, that made her climb a tree and not worry whether she was going to fall down or not. I, for example, would have never climbed a tree out of mortal fear that that would happen. How right. would I overcome the fear of climbing the tree? Right. And I think my answer is it's both. That I grew up uh, being taught not to be afraid of certain things. I'm raising my kids the same way. But my sisters, who grew up in the same house, are afraid of some things that I'm not. So my guess is um, it's nature and nurture both. Gregory, if I can also add to what Seth is saying, this is a, a really interesting topic to me, the idea of what is physically um, tangible and the things that we create for ourselves in order to do or not do things. I think it's, it's very um, logical that we are afraid of, you know, boa constrictors are standing on a ledge and so forth. The things that we're personally afraid of, the things that other people might not be so afraid of, are the things that are much more interesting to me. And I think that one of the best things I ever read about fear was in The New Yorker. It was about, I guess, two or three months ago, and it was about Barbara Streisand. And, you know, whether or not you like Barbara Streisand is, is not the point. The, what the um, author was talking about was her enormous stage fright. Um, and how she overcame it. And apparently her manager said that Barbara Streisand's great, great talent wasn't her singing ability or her acting ability or her producing ability. It was her ability to perform despite her stage fright. And I really loved that. It's one of the best definitions of, of you know, doing something with the, the force of your will than anybody, uh, than anything else I've ever read. Um, I think you have to decide, you know, what is more important to you? What is more important? Is it is more important climbing the tree or is it being afraid and not climbing the tree? Which 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 state would you rather be in? Um, and I, I say I, that... Let me just jump in, Debbie, with a, a really practical um, exercise. 
that I've used repeatedly with people, which is uh, if you've ever played the game Pictionary, you will find that most people aren't very good at it until you teach them that the way to play is to just keep speaking until you get the right answer. That uh, you just start by guessing it's a ship and you just keep coming up with nouns and verbs until you're right. And what I've done is led brainstorming sessions where we spend the first five minutes playing Pictionary in this manner. And what I've found is that the results that come out of people's mouths after the game is over are five or ten times greater than not. And the point of the exercise is to demonstrate to people not that they should be afraid of snakes, but that there is no rational reason to be afraid of saying something in front of three of your peers. And forcing someone to do it in a safe way, a game of Pictionary, instantly allows them to do it in a place that's not as safe, which is a brainstorming session. But many things that you can say, for example, um, which you can rationalize intellectually, academically, saying, saying that, uh, doesn't mean that you can reconcile it emotionally, which allows you to overcome the fear. So right, that's we're the agreeing. question. How do you do that? We're agreeing, because what, what I did was, I, I, by getting the person to speak for three minutes in a nonsensical way, playing Pictionary, I got past their conscious fear, because they demonstrated to themselves that they were fine. And so then getting them to use the same vocal cords and the same posture to yell out ideas was much easier than having to go from zero to 60 all at once. Well, thanks, Seth. I could talk about this all day, but thanks very much. Thanks for calling. Uh Thanks, Debbie. Thanks, Gregory. Um, Seth, I'd like to talk to you a little bit more about your book, All Marketers Are Are Liars. And on your blog, you write that All Marketers Are Liars isn't about lying at all. It's about telling stories that people want to believe. It's about the fact that people want bottled water, not tap, iPod nanos, not Rios, and politicians who talk straight regardless of the consequences. But most of all, it's about authenticity, which I I am a big proponent of. Um, My favorite description, which you state in your introduction about the book, is that the book is about the psychology of satisfaction. Um, What do you mean by the psychology of satisfaction? Everybody has everything. Everyone in North America has everything they need, if not everyone. Mm -hmm. Most people, maybe not those homeless folks you ran into. So if you have everything you need, you're left with what you want. And all the money that's made in branding, all the money that's made in the design world, all the money that's made in marketing is made from selling to people things they want. And we buy what we want because we believe it's going to satisfy us. And the psychology of that is totally different than buying things you need. Mm -hmm. And the problem is that marketers for a really long time focused on features, focused on obvious practical benefits focused on delivering a product that people needed. And, you know, that comes from Procter & Gamble because Procter & Gamble for a long time, that's what they made, Mm -hmm. you know, things that we mostly needed. And what I think is happening in this sort of post-industrial economy is the smartest marketers and the most successful ones have completely abandoned any pretense of giving you what you need and have instead embraced this idea of want and figured out that maybe what they sell has nothing to do with what's inside the bottle, but everything to do with how it makes you feel to buy the bottle, how it makes you feel to carry the item around, how it makes you feel to drive down the street and see people, have people see what you are driving, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. 
Now, if, if we're giving some, if we're giving people things that they want, as opposed to things that they need, let's talk about why they want them. I think you said before that that um, we will buy things that we believe satisfy us. I think that we're, we've gone beyond that too. We're buying things that we believe will make us feel better about ourselves if we really want to, you know, analyze it and if people are truly being honest with themselves. You know, why do they really need that, you know, $900 pair of shoes? Um, it's going to make you feel better at that moment. You put them on at least for a few minutes. Um, let's talk about then the, the whole nature of branding. Um, do you feel that there's something inherently deceptive about branding? Well, every time you have a conversation about branding, two people are talking about something that they don't agree about mm -hmm. because no one knows what that word means. This is true. What does it mean to you? Well, I, I, I tend I to ask a, my guests. I think a pretty uh, abrupt definition, and I say a brand is a stand-in for a whole bunch of hard-to-describe attributes, emotions, and experiences. Mm -hmm. So it's a shortcut. It's like if I say to you, Charlie Chaplin, in just two words, I can evoke a whole bunch of pictures in your head. Yeah. Marty Neumeier calls it a gut feeling. Sure. And so brand, if that's brand, then branding, the verb, means what? Does it mean um, causing those feelings, or does it mean um, getting people to associate those feelings with a symbol or some other shortcut? It could mm -hmm. be both. So Starbucks does branding when the person behind the counter doesn't mind making a no chai, extra sugar, blah, 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 and does it with a smile. But Starbucks also does branding when they make sure that that green logo is on the cup. Mm -hmm. Because two things have happened. One, they created an experience, an environment, a, a feeling. And two, they gave me a whole bunch of shortcuts to remember it by. Okay. So in terms of, and, and that's, in, in many ways, that's visual. What you're talking about is visual branding with you know, green and the logo and, and so forth. No, but it could be audio, tactile, yeah. mm -hmm. or just a word. Yeah, so a attributes, physical attributes. Um, but, the, but the psychology of branding, talk to me about that, because I, I often, you know, that's, that's the business that I'm in, um, and, and I often get um, quite a lot of, of pushback about the nature of what it is brand consultants do. And I feel like what brand consultants do on their best day is, is help the consumer see the truth about things. But there are quite a lot of people that don't agree with that and feel that what brand consultants do are perpetuate consumerism and, and lies and, and sort of add to the um, lack of self-esteem that we have, you know, culturally. What, tell me about your thoughts on that. Well, if I were a brand consultant, and I don't do any consulting, but if I were one, my goal would not be to change anything about consumers, but to change things about my clients. And what I would push my clients to do were create experiences and products that are worth talking about, experiences and products that actually generate an emotion on my part. That, um, you know, there's all sorts of, academic things you can do or there's all sorts of things you can do to make the boss happy or to work your way through a committee. But what you end up with is something that no one cares about, something that falls flat, something that people don't remember. And, you know, what I talk about in Free Price Inside and Purple Cow is this idea of going to the edge, of doing something um, that matters to people. 
And I'm not sure it's a marketer's job to teach people that they are selfish or to teach people that they are Mm -hmm. short-sighted. I think that if someone's worldview uh, demands a certain item um, and a marketer with a good conscience can bring that item to the person, they ought to do it in a way that creates an emotional connection so that that consumer is telling themselves a story that's authentic, that's true. So, right. give you an example. Um, oh, is that, is that music again? Well, um, yeah, why don't we take a break so that we can get the full answer when we get back. Um, I don't want to shortchange this. This is very important to me. Um, I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is Seth Godin. We will be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business. This is Voice America Business. Welcome back to Voices of Design. We're speaking with Kevin Grady and Colin Metcalf of Gum Magazine. Kevin, tell us about the What's for Dinner project. And that was uh, a project that uh, we did that um, juxtaposed slaughterhouse imagery with um, with little cozy recipe cards, like from you know Aunt Jenny's you know uh, kitchen, you know. I got a bunch of cards from my mom that mostly from the 70s that had these cute little motifs and typographically were very, um, very homey. And and then you just have a recipe for meatloaf and then juxtaposed with these uh, you know, pretty incredible photographs taken by an Italian photographer named Giuseppe Fasani. And um, so yeah, it's kind of an interesting juxtaposition. Again, there's no real point made beyond putting those together and letting people kind of make with, make of it what they want. You've been listening to Voices of Design, brought to you by Adobe. Coming up in the next break, Kevin gives some advice to fellow designers. 200 years ago, Lewis and Clark discovered the West. That is, if you don't count the millions of American Indians who discovered it first. Because Lewis and Clark left one civilization only to find dozens of others that, despite everything, are still here today. Walk with Lewis and Clark at lewisandclark200.org and see what you discover, because their trail winds through us all. This is a public service message of the National Council of the Lewis and Clark Bicentennial, the Missouri Historical Society, and the Ed Council. The bottom line in business talk. Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Live from the Empire State Building, you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is Seth Godin. If you'd like to join our conversation, if you have a question for Seth, please call 1-866-472-5790. And before the break, we were talking a little bit about the psychology of satisfaction, which is a term from Seth's book, All Marketers Are Liars. Um, and we were talking about uh, people's worldview. And Seth, another, another line in the book that I thought was really interesting is you write that taste is another word for a person's worldview. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that? Um, yeah, maybe uh, let me finish this, the example and, sure, and, absolutely. and hopefully that will bring it together. Yes, uh, good. So cats don't care what they eat. No cat, no house cat has ever starved to death because of pickiness. And you can buy cat food for 20 cents a day, no problem. So 
how do we explain fancy feast cat food, which costs $3 a can? And the answer is that for $3, the person who bought the cat food gets something extra stinky and extra finely ground that makes the cat owner feel good. Mm-hmm. That what she got for her $3 was a story, a story about doing the right thing for this little pet. And the cat's not the who the food is for. If, if it was for the cat, it would come in mouse flavor. It's for the owner. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. I think there's nothing wrong with a marketer charging $3 to give someone who can afford it the pleasure of knowing they did something for an animal they care about. That's what they're selling. Well, they're selling the idea of it. All the things that Fancy Feast does to tell that story, extra stinky, carefully chosen words, carefully are designed to evoke an emotion that gives that person pleasure, which they were able to purchase for only $3. Now, her worldview is very different than mine. I want uh, no cats in my life, and if I have to feed the cat across the street, I want no odor whatsoever. I don't want to have to open a can, and I want it to be fast and cheap. So that's taste. You know, my taste in cat food is different than her taste in cat food because of our worldviews, because of the biases we bring to the table before we even start. Okay. Now, do you feel that given that cat food is not flavored mouse flavor and instead is flavored something that probably is unimportant to cats, that the fact that it is flavored chicken is something that is deceptive. Well, see, that's why the title of my book was a mistake, because (laughs) all good marketers are actually truth-tellers. Okay. They're telling the truth because they're telling a story that's authentic, that holds up to scrutiny, meaning that the cat food people aren't standing up and saying, cats like this better than mouse flavor. They never said that. They told a much more complicated story, and it's a story that is true in that, The more you look at it, the more it does make you feel good. Mm -hmm. Compare that to Ford Motor Company telling us that SUVs are patriotic and efficient and safe and macho. When gas hits three bucks a gallon, we discover they're none of those things. We discover that minivans are safer, that they're more efficient at carrying our family around, that they lead to a safer country, and in return, we turn around and 25,000 people at Ford lose their jobs because everyone stopped buying SUVs. That story about SUVs wasn't true. It wasn't authentic. It was a fraud. It was deceitful. It was wrong. That they were pandering to us with really negative side effects. Mm -hmm. And so I believe that if you're a marketer for the long haul, not trying to sell, you know, some quick hit before you leave town, what you must do is understand that if you are going to embrace and amplify people's worldview, you have to do it in a way that's authentic and you have to do it in a way that stands up over time because, you know, ask anyone who works at Philip Morris. It's no fun to go to a cocktail party after people discover you've been killing them and their children. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that um, Jonathan Bond of Kirschenbaum and Bond said it really well about consumers. The consumers are like roaches. You can spray them with marketing bullshit for a little while, but they'll be able to... Uh, come out of that very quickly when they realize that it's not good for them. (laughs) 
So um, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about design. You write quite a lot about design in your books. Um, you wrote a, wrote a wonderful article that was titled, How to Live Happily with a Great Designer, in which you indicate things that uh, a design team wishes, any, uh, any kind of design team would wish that a marketer would know. And they include things like, if you want average or mediocre work, ask for it. Um, things that you shouldn't say, like, you can't tell me you'll know it when you see it. Um, and if you want to be part of the design process, please go to school, redesign magazines, or take a course from Milton Glaser. And my favorite, uh, if um, that isn't enough, was um, you don't know a lot about accounting, so you don't backseat drive your accountant. You hired a great designer, please don't backseat drive here either. So why do you think that... Um, managers within corporations try to do those things so much more blatantly than anybody else? Well, you know, the thing is, accounting has right answers and it has wrong answers. And driving a forklift has right outcomes and it has wrong outcomes. So it's scary to do either one if you don't know what you're doing because you're going to get caught. And the worst thing in the whole world is to try to get a group of people to design on a new, to agree on a new brand name or logo. Because everyone thinks they're an expert, because we've been consumers our whole lives. Everyone thinks they have something to contribute, because there is no right answer. And what I argue is there is a right process. That it, you can do the process wrong, or you can do the process right. And if you do the process wrong, it's the manager's fault. And the manager has to be responsible for the outcome. She's on the hook. Mm -hmm. And it was very, you know, you reminded me of that uh, thing that's on my blog, and I appreciate you reminding me. I'll tell you quite briefly, I took a course with Milton Glaser at the School of Visual Arts in New York. Did you take the summer program with him? Sorry? The summer program? The summer uh, no, it was a uh, portfolio course that um, was an elective. I, wasn't a, I was not an enrolled student. I was just, you know, it was an uh, extracurricular thing. And um, I don't have a portfolio because I've managed designers. I'm not a designer. And he wouldn't let me in. Really? And I, and I was persistent, and he said I could come, but if I didn't add value to the class, he was going to throw me out. And what was interesting about this class is he indulged all of the wrong desires of the designers in the class. Really? It was, it was all about how do you tweak something to the nth degree, not how do you understand the marketing concept behind what you were instructed to do in the first place. And after three classes of my disagreeing with him in class, he threw me out. Really? Milton Glaser yeah. threw you out of a class? I was so, I mean, it was, I was only 24 years old, and I was very pleased and proud that I was thrown out of Milton Glaser's master class in design. <laughs> That's really interesting. So what made you decide to write this piece, How to Live Happily with a Great Designer? Well, I'm, I have a big enough ego to believe that I live uh, quite happily with a really great designer. And he and I have been working together long distance for years. And, you know, I send him half a sketch, uh, five things that I want to emulate, and a design brief. And he sends me back something that's great nine times out of ten. And then I've seen over and over again backseat driving uh, micromanagers who have no clue who take five times as long, pay ten times as much, and get something that's worthless. Who is the designer that you work with? Uh, his name's Red Maxwell, and mm -hmm. he has a firm down in North Carolina called On Ramp. Um, and uh, I've worked with some other people too, but Red's my buddy. 
Cool. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about this after the break. We also have a caller waiting to speak with you, Seth. I'd like to let everybody know that they are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is author and entrepreneur Seth Godin. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Strengthening your financial goals. The leader in business talk radio. Voice America Business. Welcome back to Voices of Design. We're speaking with Kevin Grady and Colin Metcalf with Gum Magazine. Kevin, what advice do you have for other designers out there? As a designer, it's better to kind of, you know, find stuff that actually makes your heart beat a little faster and try to stick with that stuff and stay in that as much as you can. Do your best to make a living out of it. And uh, you're not going to be good at everything. So in other words, curate your portfolio, you know. See it as a gallery space and, and uh, be selective. If something really stinks and you did a lousy work on it, it doesn't matter if it's for the biggest company in the world. Uh, you might mention to people you work for that company, but it's in the end not really going to help you out if you're showing bad work, you know. I got Let that be a lesson to you. You've been listening to Voices of Design, brought to you by Adobe. For more information, visit adobe.com. Mom? Dad? How long should I wait for you? Mom? If I'm at soccer practice. What if something happens? Will you come get me? There's no reason not to have a plan in case of a terrorist attack. Mom, if you're not home, should we go to the neighbor's house? And some extremely good reasons why you should. Can you tell me? Everybody should have a plan. Take five minutes to talk about where you'll meet and how you'll get in touch with each other in an emergency. For other things you can do to be prepared, visit www.ready.gov. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security and the Ad Council. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business. This is Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is... 47 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on this Friday afternoon on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is author and entrepreneur Seth Godin. I would like to let everybody know that we have to close the phone lines because we have two callers and we're not going to have time for any others, but thank you so much for trying. First, we have Karen. Karen online, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Seth. Hi, how are you? Good, thank you. How are you? Fantastic. Um, my question is pretty basic, and it goes to sort of some of the things you've been saying about everybody thinking they have something to contribute and tweaking to the nth degree, but how do you feel um, about focus groups and how they fit into the marketer's decisions or, and other consumer input and research, stuff like that? Good question. Focus groups are a lot like guns in that... <laughs> There may be some valid reasons to own one, but most of the people who do misuse them, and they probably should be banned. Most marketers have no clue how to use a focus group, and the reason is that a focus group is vivid and emotional and right there in front of you. And so you start treating the five or 15 people in the room not like they're giving you hints or vague insights, but like they are the census of the world. And they have too much impact, and you end up, 
buying into their groupthink, um, and you end up losing your vision. If Henry Ford had had a focus group, we would all have better buggy whips today. <laughs> that's what the focus group would have wanted. And the great stuff, the remarkable stuff, isn't obviously great, and it's not obviously remarkable, not after one bowl of cereal or one call on the, on the new kind of cell phone or one use of the new laptop. It's great a month later when all your friends have one too. And so if marketers were brave and insightful, then I'd be all in favor of focus groups. But given that they are lemmings and chickens, I'm not. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for calling, Karen. Uh, we have another caller on the line. We have Alan. Alan, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Seth. Hi. How are you doing? Fantastic. Thanks. What's, what's up with you? My question uh, for you, Seth, is actually about the issue of employer branding. I've been reading a lot about employer branding recently. My work as an organizational development guy. And I'm interested in your thoughts on it. Um, you know, who's doing it well, who's not? You know, I see very successful, very um, brand-driven design companies um, like, for example, Apple, who have, you know, one of the coolest brands on the planet, but not much of an employer identity. Um, and then we see somebody like Google get, you know, best place to work. And, uh, you know, clearly a very strong design culture, too. I'm just wondering, what, you know, what you think about this issue of employer branding and how important or not um, it really is for, you know, for, for business in America today. It's a brilliant question. I, you know, years ago I was sitting in the office of a guy at Disney. Um, my company was going fast. I was hiring a person a week or so. And in the corner of his desk was a four-inch high stack of resumes with drawings and beautiful stuff. And he said, yeah, he gets that many every week. And the mm -hmm. fact is that most, most employees aren't particularly bright about how they choose where to work. And they tend to act like consumers when they're looking for a job. So you may say that Apple doesn't have much of a uh, of a track record employer brand, yeah. of an employer brand, but the number of resumes coming into Apple is out the roof. Well, I don't know that that's because of the employee relationship. I think it's because of the cachet of saying exactly. that you work for Apple. You can tell your mother-in-law you got a job at Apple. Yeah. And so, you know, what Google has done is they've doubled down. They have a great consumer brand, but they've also worked hard to build a great employer brand. And so they've gotten, you know, so many resumes that they don't know what to do with them. Mm -hmm. And if I were a company looking to hire great people, unfortunately, I think I'd have to do both. I'd have to have yeah. a reputation for doing cool stuff at the same time that I have a reputation for being a cool place to work. And so IDEO is another example of that sort of, mm -hmm. they focused on the consumer not because it helped them get new clients, but they get written up in fast company and stuff because it helps them get great employees. Right. And do you think there's a, a direct, I mean, do you think it's important for sort of what I call the audio and the video to match in terms of, um, you know, companies can go out there and brand themselves as employers. Um, you know, how quickly do people see through that? Well, you know, remember, you have huge amounts of cognitive dissonance going on because yeah. once you're in there, you can't get out so you tell yourself a story about how great it is. But <laughs> what we have to say out loud in the time we got left is there really is a difference between having average employees and employees who are the best in the world. And that what we see is that organizations that are filled with amazing people tend to do better stuff. Yeah. And what's that worth? And I think it's worth a lot. 
And about $500 a share, probably. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that... 64000 uh, if you ask Warren If they think that hiring the average person from the average resume is the way to build an exceptional company. Right. And employees are fooling themselves if they think that sticking it out at a company that's average is a good strategy. It's not. And I think if I accomplish anything in this call, in this interview today, it's to persuade at least one person who has an average job with an average company to quit before the end of the day. Bravo. Thank you, Seth. My pleasure. Employers all over the world are running to their desks. <laughs> um, you know, Seth, I wanted to bring the conversation back for a moment um, about design because I think that what you said was very provocative, talking about, you know, tweaking something to death. So what would you say are the top three things that designers need to know about marketing? Okay, the first thing they need to know is that the reason you design something is... Oh, we're here. I think the caller okay. just hung up. The reason you design something is a marketing exercise. The purpose of the design is to evoke an emotion in somebody so that they want to use it again and, more important, that they want to tell their friends. So if all you're doing is something utilitarian, a refrigerator that opens and closes, sure, that needs to get done, but it's been done before. We don't need someone as talented as you to do that. What you're doing is creating something worth talking about. And if it's not, you shouldn't bother, right? You can just okay. copy what somebody else has already done if all your goal is is to be the same. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the second thing is to understand that marketing is not just about the purchase of an item. In fact, more of it, more of it is about the use of the item and what happens after the item is used up. And so it is the designer's responsibility to teach the client how to think that way because it's the way that thing interacts with me six months from now that I'm going to remember when I need to go buy a new one. How do you get clients that might not be aware of that to think that way if it's the designer's job to teach the client? Well, there are two things. Number one, if you want to be the best designer in the world, if you want to be a great designer, you need great clients. And having the confidence in yourself to fire a client who is intransigent is the first step to having the power to actually teach them, mm-hmm. right? That, you know, I was a professor at NYU, and once I told everyone what they would need to do to get an F, it got to be a lot easier to push them to overcome <laughs> their fear because they understood what was at stake. Okay. And when a designer can sit down with a client and say, here's my portfolio, I'm really good, but if you won't let me teach you what's important, you can't be my client anymore, then you have the basis for a mutually beneficial relationship. Okay, so going back to the three things that a designer should know about uh, working with marketing. Right, um, but I have the one thing? left. Yes, you do. Which is um, no one hired you to win an award. <laughs> okay. Very interesting advice from author and entrepreneur Seth Godin. Well, we have come to the end of our broadcast. Sadly, this has been a a nice conversation, I think. Thank you very much, Seth. I'd like to really thank you for being on the show. I'd also like to thank uh, our sponsor, Adobe. Thank you very much to Brian Travis at Voice America and Lisa Grant and Jen Simon at Sterling. Joining me next week on Design Matters is Zay Frank. Yes, sports racers. way funnier than me. (laughs) 
<laughs> Way funny, but I need to say one thing. I have yes. all sorts of free gifts for your listeners. Oh, what's that? Go to squidoo.com slash Seth, and there's like five ebooks there, free of charge. Go wow. Squidoo.com slash Seth for free books from Seth Godin. Thank you for listening, and please remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. 